The following presentation has been prepared by the Video Tax News team for Canadian tax and financial professionals. Program recorded November 20th, 2019. Enjoy! Welcome to the holiday edition of Life in the Tax Lane. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> I'm glad you did that because I, I wasn't quite sure which holiday we were talking about. No, Joe? It's going to be joyous today. <laughs> Let's talk about tax. All right. So we're going to start <laughs> off here with uh, the first issue, uh, investment okay. management fees. So, so this is something Siri has been grappling with for a number of years. Uh, so the, the concept is this. You've got a TFSA, let's say, and you've got an unregistered account. And you're paying the management fees associated with the TFSA out of the unregistered account. Well, the value of those fees, CRA has opined, that will probably be an advantage subject to the 100% tax. So in other words, a tax equivalent to what you paid over here. So that's a big problem. But the question was, was that really the intention of these advantage tax rules? And they've been delaying, delaying, delaying the application of this position. Uh, we've now got a, a comment, a letter from finance basically saying, yeah, CRA, I think you've technically interpreted interpret it correctly, but we also agree that maybe this doesn't really meet the intention behind the rules, so we're going to recommend that the legislation be changed. Great news, hey? You betcha. Yeah. Cross our fingers that we'll see that come down the pipe in the near future. Now, mm -hmm. we had a uh, case, and as we approach the personal tax season, we do see some of these clients who uh, this fellow had a rental operation. Mm -hmm. And he was setting it up in a holiday location, so short-term rental operations. He had uh, only two years under his belt when CRA came in and said, we don't like your losses because we're seeing only a little bit of revenues, maybe a few thousand dollars in the second year, less than a thousand in the first, and huge expenses. You're reporting $25,000, $28,000 a year in losses. We don't like it. We think it's all personal. Well, this fellow went to tax court and he got to tell his side of the story. He said, well... Yeah, we had losses early on. I had to incur a lot of startup costs, early advertising, fixing the place up to be more suitable as a holiday rental destination. And it takes time to build some buzz and attract people to come and rent the space. But I had my plan, and I think it was realistic that by year three or four, I could rent this place out at least two weeks a month. I wouldn't have these big startup costs anymore. They're already dealt with. And even two weeks a month, we would have been making a little bit of money all I got to do is get it up to three, four. Now we're making some real serious dough. The problem was, due to some personal financial reversals and personal issues outside of this business venture, we didn't get there. We had to pull the plug. The time and the money weren't available. Well, the judge looked at this and says, you know what? You got a history of entrepreneurial thinking, different business ventures. Not all business ventures work out. Your testimony is backed up. I can see the personal issues you had to deal with. And you have a real business plan that's viable. CRA, not every business plan works out. He had real losses trying to earn a profit. He gets to deduct his losses. So a little good news for that taxpayer. Yeah, yeah. So we go from a taxpayer who reported losses to another taxpayer who fortunately had income, however, didn't get that income on their personal tax return. And we know if you fail to report income, in particular, 
twice in a four-year period, the penalty can be quite punitive. So we have a court case looking at whether, you know, we missed reporting income and whether we should be applying that penalty. And the taxpayer here basically took the position that, you know what, that income, it wasn't on a T3 slip, T5 slip that I received, and therefore I shouldn't have to put it on my return. And, and the taxpayer said, further to that, I went online to CRA's online system, and I downloaded all the slips that they have, and guess what wasn't there? What? Th you'll never believe it, <laughs> but those slips. And the taxpayer basically took the position, well, I downloaded it, was, wasn't there, it's not income, I need to be reporting. Uh, and the court said, you know what, no, 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 I don't care if you don't have it on a slip, you don't have it on a statement, you don't have it on the back of a napkin. If it is your income, you need to get it on the return. No flexibility there. The 20, over $24,000 was upheld and assessed on the taxpayer. Now, the second component of the puzzle here is whether the taxpayer could get hit with this pretty significant penalty because he made this error twice. And the court actually goes through uh, a five-step test to determine the application of the rules, really nicely laid out, basically saying, uh, to be assessed with this penalty, your failure needs to be at least $500 in the year of the penalty and the prior year, uh, the, or and the year where you had the first miss, and of course, uh, we did satisfy that here. The court also said uh, you could be duly diligent in either of the two years, and with respect to the year where we had the penalty, the court said, you know what, you missed income in a previous year, and that should have caused you to think about taking extra precautions in subsequent years to determine whether or not you are missing income, and you just didn't do that. Further to that, in this case, the taxpayer relied on very, very old uh, tax advice, 50-year-old tax advice, uh, when applying his position here. So was not duly diligent in that year or the prior year. And, and the fifth step here uh, was that another penalty was not also assessed on that particular income. Uh, so unfortunately, a uh, taxpayer here had the income, had the big penalty, and this acts as a really important reminder that when we are approaching T1 season, we don't get too reliant on our software. You got to get all that information on your return. Now, moving on to the next topic here, uh, we're talking about agency crazy, uh, well, I shouldn't say crazy, interesting case where we had an individual who wanted to buy a bunch of iPhones in Canada, export them to Hong Kong where they were not yet available, and make a little bit of a profit on it. Problem is, when you buy the iPhones here, you could only buy two per person per day. How is he going to buy 3,500 over a few months? Well, you get all of your friends and relatives and an acquaintance to buy them on your behalf. Hey, Joe, I have a business opportunity. <laughs> Do you, Caitlin? <laughs> all right, Katie. So anyways, um, you know, were they agents or not, all these people who bought it on his behalf? Well, we have to take a look at, because if they were, then what you can do is claim the input tax credit for the GST, HST that all of those individuals paid when buying them in Canada. So do we actually have an agency agreement in place? Well, usually a written contract is the best way to prove this, but they didn't have that. It was just informal. So if you can prove by your actions that you are acting as an agent, then yes, you would be considered an agent and those ITCs can be claimed. In this situation, uh, there's basically a guaranteed reimbursement. So what phones you bought, it was going to be purchased by that individual in Canada who was going to sell it to Hong Kong. If the things got wrecked, you would still be buying it. Um, 
was it likely that you would buy a whole bunch of these phones without actually having an agreement in place, you know, to send it off to somebody else? And uh, also, this individual in the middle did advise when to start and stop buying. So all of these things indicated that there truly was an agreement in place. They were considered agents and not uh, trading on their own behalf, and therefore we did have the ability to claim those ITCs. And I got to say, for regular businesses out there, sometimes you do buy something on behalf of your business. The wrong name is on the receipt, and you've got to argue that an agency agreement was in place if it truly was, and then you can claim the ITC. This is a good case to look at in respect to that. Mm -hmm. Katie, Hugh? Yeah. Well, and I think the challenge, Joe, is it's got to be big enough dollars to fight over because CRA's inclination is wrong name, no claim. Yeah. So we really want to watch out for that. I like uh, that jingle. Oh, yeah. It's all Christmassy, isn't it? Well, we talk about uh, represent a client, Kate, on downloading information. CRA has told us that commencing in early 2020 when they update the My Account Represent a Client service, authorizations are not going to be automatically cancelled when a taxpayer passes away, which has been a real problem in the tax community. Uh, the assumption now is the executor will probably keep using that authorized representative. We'll leave them access until the executor tells us otherwise. So I've heard a lot of delight from a lot of practitioners <laughs> that we'll still have that yeah. access. Delight, I think, might be an understatement. We talked about this at the course. We had a few people dancing in the back of the room. <laughs> but let's move on to the final item here, a trend we are seeing all across the country and even beyond Canada's border, the increase of disclosure-related to who owns what. We had recently the Canada Business Corporations Act being updated to require us to uh, keep a register as to who the owners, the beneficial owners are of that company, of that entity, that company. Likewise, the British Columbia Corporations Act has very similar legislation. But it's not just in Canada, even beyond the borders. Joe, uh, you mentioned this in the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. in the UK. Yeah, I got to disclose who the owners are, but also your income statement, your balance sheet, all that information available online, even for the smallest private entities. Yeah, and, and Hugh, we saw it in the States as well. The U.S. has recently joined the party. They've uh, got their proposals out for how they're going to have similar ownership disclosure. And these are all taking us right from the company up to the individuals who own the assets, uh, the, the shares of that company. So pretty extensive disclosure obligations. And Kate, I think that's all we have time for. So we'll wish everybody happy holidays and see you in the new year. The Video Tax News team has been providing Canadian professionals with practical tax information for over 30 years. Subscribe to one of our tax newsletters or join us as we present live and online seminars relating to both personal and corporate tax. For more details, visit www.videotax.com. That's V-I-D-E-O-T-A-X.com. The preceding information is for general informational purposes only and deals with dynamic, time-sensitive, and complex matters that may not apply to particular facts and circumstances. Information provided should not be relied upon as a substitute for specialized professional advice in connection with any particular matter. For more details, see videotax.com slash disclaimer. Copyright Video Tax News, Inc. 2019. All rights reserved.